Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right. This is another Q&A episode. What, how many of them have we done now? I think this is our third or fourth one. No, I think it's like the fifth Q&A we've done. Oh, I is think, it? Oh, wow. I think we seem to go about every 15 episodes or something like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're, uh, we've definitely got a few on the list here. So yeah, we we're going to try to chip away at a few more of them. Yeah, and so we, again, we always preference our Patreon folks. So if you guys are going to dig deep and pull out that five bucks, you get your question answered quicker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, folks. And also, if you do, if you are a Patreon subscriber and you have a question, if you could, when you send the email and if you could put that on the, the message somewhere so that I know right away to put you to the top of the list, because we do have one of our perks over on Patreon that moves your question to the top of the list. So we do get quite a few questions sent in and we only have so much time at the moment to do the Q&A episode. So sometimes the list does pile up, but if you're a Patreon supporter, we would like to kind of prioritize your questions. Um, so yeah, if you can just put the note there. Yeah, we may, you know, like I said, if we, if we're trying to, I think our goal right now is trying to pop out three of these a week. So we may be able to get a few more Q Q and A's done and whittle down this list a little quicker, hopefully. Um, the other thing is, you know, maybe we should talk about sponsors. You know, we've got a, a number of people that have kind of requested about sponsors. So we've got a sponsor packet. You know, if you guys are interested to send us an email on that, you, you might, if you just want to sponsor one show, we can do that. Or, or most of them are doing, you know, doing a quarter at a time. So well, let's get into the first question, Zach, and this is going to be for you. I'll read it for you. This is from Alan Williamson, who is a Patreon patron. Thank you very much for that, Alan. He's out of Burnsville, Minnesota, and he's going to ask about something about running and stuff. So he says, don't know if you all might be able to shine some light on this or not, but I had a rather interesting thing happen to me. I donated blood on Wednesday in early December. Shows you how far away we are from our court. A couple yeah. months back on the question. <laughs> then a few days later, I went out for a run on Sunday. I have done this in the past, and it would take four to six weeks to get uh, back to normal running pace after losing that amount of red blood cells. This time was different. I was expecting to just do run and walk, mostly walking. When I started running, I found that I was fine. I wasn't lacking oxygen, and my chest was not tight. It was the weirdest thing. I was floored. I have been eating very low carb for five years. I've been doing OMAD and carnivore since July of 2018. So not much of a, I'm not much of a runner like I've been in the past because I'm an old goat. <laughs> I go running two times a week and I love doing long runs for two, three hours on Sunday morning in a fasted state. I lift weights four times a week. My question is, does a fat-adapted runner need as much oxygen to make energy compared to a not a fat-adapted runner? Did Dr. Volek and Dr. Finney touch on this in the faster study of so what are some of the findings zach you, you you're more familiar with that particular study and, and dr finney and bullock than i am and you're certainly certainly much more able to speak on running than i can mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think uh to to kind of start from the beginning i think like the 
the interesting thing is like you've had a history of donating blood and you kind of a timeline on how long it would take you to kind of normalize after that. So uh, I, I, I'm guessing that would be a blood volume situation where, you know, you're donating, what is it usually like a liter of blood or something like that. Um, it just takes time for that blood volume to get back up. And I'm, I'm sure eating like nutrient dense foods and hydrating and stuff after things that can kind of speed that up. So whether your keto carnivore OMAD lifestyle sped that up or not is uh is anyone's guess, I suppose. But, uh, you know, for me, like I like the field tests. So <laughs> if you notice that you do better with that, then I think no reason to kind of go away from that. And then with the question with the oxygen side of things, you know, it, it's my understanding that it's, it, you know, it, we're, we're dealing with, I guess, a limited amount of data here, but, uh, um, especially when you get up into higher intensities for longer durations. So kind of that gray area zone for like marathon work and stuff like that. I would, I would think it would take more oxygen to burn more fat just because there's going to be more steps in that process than just going straight to muscle glycogen. Now that's not to say that you don't have muscle glycogen as a fat adapted runner. You certainly do. Uh, you know, especially if you're going through kind of a more of a periodized approach, which you probably wouldn't be with your, keto carnivore OMADS lifestyle. But, um, you know, even, even that, I mean, Sean clearly has my muscle glycogen and uh, he's doing intense stuff. So uh, I would think that it would probably be dependent on that. I don't know, Sean, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, taking out a pint of blood is going to lower your, your oxygen transport capacity in the blood. So I'm not surprised you know, to dip in performance. It's one of the reasons I don't typically give blood because I'm always trying to compete. I know, I know Zach wouldn't donate a pint of blood a week before one of his 100-mile runs. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it certainly increases our oxygen carrying capacity. I do, you know, I think as a fat-adapted runner, you know, you're going to, you know, again, you didn't, it sounded like you're going for a jog and not really an all-out sprint or anything like that. So, you know, I think we know that the better fat-adapted you are, the, the more you're going to be able to do that without taxing yourself as much without tapping into that glycolytic type stuff without tapping into that uh you know oxidatively stressful stuff um the uh you know the the point about that zach brought up or even potentially you know i don't know what your hemoglobin was before you doing it if you've been eating a bunch of meat um it might have been that your hemoglobin was higher to start with and then, and then giving that usual pint instead of taking you down from you know, 13 down to 11 only took you from 15 to 13. So, I mean, there could be a lot of different variables in there. And certainly Zach's point about the fact that eating a meat-rich diet may allow you to more rapidly, um, you know, replete some of that stuff. I mean, the red blood cells still have to be created. I'm not sure if it's going to be that much quicker, uh, but it, it might have an effect. You know, certainly you're going to get plenty of heme iron and those things are going to go into restoring that. But I would suspect that you know, the, the two things that I'd kind of guessed about were that. I know, speaking of Volek, are we going to get him on the show? Uh, Zach, what's the, what's the story on Jeff Volek? I mean, I, I know he said he might come on. We got we got. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had, I think I might've had just an old contact for him. So he might not have gotten one of my first messages, but I did find uh, a different contact. <laughs> well, we got it. We'll get him on. Um, yeah. He's a busy guy though. So I think we might just have to be a little patient, but we, he, he'd be a, a great guest for sure. So um, Dr. Volick, if you are listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to do the next question? You want to read sure, Jordan, sure. Jordan fourth? I think I can do this one if you want to read it. Cool. Yeah. So Jordan fourth asks, 
I really enjoy your show and appreciate what you're doing for the nutrition for nutrition, despite the backlash I'm sure you must receive. Also, thanks for being so active on Instagram. It's helpful and inspiring. I have a question concerning constipation that myself and others have experienced when doing keto or low carb. Can you address this? My father has had real issues with this. He is an obese type one diabetic and has tried all the ADA recommendation diets with absolutely no success. I, I finally convinced him to eat low carb, a modified Atkins banting approach. And for the first time in years, the weight started coming off. The two issues he's had to deal with is low blood sugar and constipation. The low blood sugar he could regulate, but to manage the constipation, he added back in beans. Since he's added in the beans, other carbs have begun slipping back into his diet. He's always been a junk food eater, and when he's on the carb roller coaster, the crackers and cookies creep right back in, and he just ups his insulin intake. I was hoping this could be a topic to address on your podcast. If not, do you have any advice or could you point me to the, in the direction of any resources addressing this? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can certainly talk about that. I mean, you know, in the context of a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, you know, I mean, the, the main thing is, you know, you're, you're, you're limiting the amount of glucose you're ingesting. And so that's going to result generally in a lower, you know, uh, blood sugar. And I think that's the whole point. I mean, I think that's the, the most efficacious way to deal with diabetes is to stop feeding yourself the, uh, the problems. Now, now, she said he was a type one, if I'm not mistaken. Is that what I saw? Yeah, type one. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, you're, he's always going to need to manage his insulin. And so he, he's going to have to, uh, you know, pay particular attention on his insulin dosing uh, and, and, you know, adjust his accordingly. You know, as far as you know, how to deal with low, you know, if, you, if you're getting dangerously hypoglycemic, then you need to have, you know, I think ideally just some dextrose tablets around so that you can, you know, you can immediately correct that if that's a problem. And I think those things are, you know, obviously it's sugar, but it's, it's going to fix the problem, you know, in the acute situation. The, you know, over the long term, you know, if, if he can consistently stay on the diet, then he'll, he'll probably see that his blood sugar uh, stabilizes, you know, we, and we avoid the highs and the lows. I think that's what, that's what most people find over time. Certainly there's, you know, even on a carnivorous diet, we see that particularly with the carnivorous diet. But as far as, um, you know, the constipation issues are concerned, you know, if he's adding beans in for constipation, you know, and he's having issues because it's causing him to want to eat other carbohydrates for whatever kind of a psychological difference. And I think the best thing to do is just a fiber supplement. You know, and, 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 you know, like I said, I, I certainly am of the opinion that maybe we don't need fiber in our diet, but if, if that's an issue for you and you want to add some fiber in there, then, then that might be the best solution in that situation. You know, and there's plenty of over-the-counter over fibers that you can, you, can, you can take in that situation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's like a lot of psychological factors that go into this. Sometimes a ketogenic diet can be difficult. Sometimes a low carb diet can be difficult just because, you know, you're constantly kind of tickling that fiber carbohydrate craving by, by feeding it. And so for some people, a complete absence works pretty well in things like a carnivorous diet, but you know, that's, it's not necessarily something everybody has to do. So if he has a willpower, uh, maybe, you know, use medication to treat th those issues and the medications I would think are a fiber supplement and then a dextrose for, the occasional low blood sugars you have. Adam, I'm sorry, Zach, you got anything? Uh... 
Yeah, I think the only thing I would add would I would I would take the information that you gathered through when in reintroducing the beans caused kind of a a cascading effect of introducing uh, a lot of other carbohydrate sources that that were less than ideal. So if if fiber for the constipation is what you're targeting, I would say like exactly what you said, Sean, find something that's not going to induce that. So whether that be a fiber supplement or maybe like something like uh, like sauerkraut or something that's like that's more of a or less of a a carby source of fiber more or less would maybe be something to try to target that wouldn't wouldn't spiral you out of control like that cool all right zach um so this next one's really long on here but the i highlighted in or i bolded the actual question so we can probably just read that um rather than going through the entire email but um this one is from thomas clark and uh thomas has a kind of a couple of questions and the first one is just kind of how close to my limit do you think I should lift with fat loss in mind? So like what type of weightlifting protocol maybe when you're trying to lose fat versus just add strength or something like, or add muscle or something like that. Um, and do you think if I keep going like this, I will gradually cut some fat? Do you think drinking RO water might be why I sometimes get muscle cramps? And have either of you talked to any other autistic people who are on keto or carnivory? Um, yeah, I can. So let me let me just answer a couple of those questions. So there actually is a Facebook group now that has, I think, a little over 200, 250 people, all folks that either have autistic, uh, either are autistic themselves or are you know, family members of people that have autism, like parents in a lot of cases. And so there are several now that are doing a carnivorous diet and many of them are noticing pretty significant benefits. So to answer that question, yes, there are autistic ones are probably are ketogenic ones. I, I'm not aware of those. Uh, do you think the reverse DRO, the reverse os osmosis water might be why I get muscle cramps? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, there's, there's some people that, feel that that depletes some minerals too much uh, and that minerals may be related to muscle cramps. They probably are. So maybe it could be, I mean, certainly, you know, it's one of the reasons I salt my food and uh, eat enough food. And that, that, that seems to be the issue with that. You know, he talks about, do I, about lifting and, and, and talking about fat. Well, I think, you know, just in, just in a general sense, I mean, diet is going to be the main predictor of how you're going to lose body fat. That's going to, that's going to be the major driver for body fat. And, you know, I know, I know you said you've been on a carnivore and a ketogenic diet before that. It's really helped your arthritis. Uh, you didn't really see any, you went back to keto and didn't feel like it was an improvement. You preferred carnivore, but I think, you know, just, just from a, from a weight loss strategy, I think there's a point where, you know, you'll find that you'll kind of find a sort of a plateau point on a carnivore diet where you're, you're kind of weight stable. And then once you figure that out, then it's just a matter of, you know, tweaking at that point. And I think the things that are going to be effective are the things that work for almost any diet. Um, I would increase the amount of lean protein I was getting, you know, to a, to a degree, not go crazy on it. And then gradually, you know, reduce the amount of food you eat a little bit. I mean, it's as simple as that. And I know that's, uh, um, it kind of goes in contrast to what a lot of people feel when they go on a carnivore diet because they feel like they can eat unlimited qualities and many of them do continue to lose weight. And I think that 
there is a bit of a metabolic advantage, particularly with regard to protein and perhaps with the low carbohydrate state. But I think once you reach that, reach that steady state and you really want to dig into that fat loss, then I think, um, you know, slight caloric reduction, uh, increased lean body, increased lean protein, uh, maybe cycling in fats, you know, to keep that, you know, keep uh, make sure you get enough essential fats. As far as the lifting is concerned, um, you know, when you say how close to my limit, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. You're talking about max lift strengths, how, what percentages you want to go. Um, I would focus on building muscle and, and, you know, a decent amount of volume. I think that's something that uh, uh, will will be a benefit. I know we're going to be having Stan Efforting coming on in the show uh, later next month, and uh, we'll talk about a little bit of that. But I think that's a strategy that um, I would pursue. So big, heavy compound movements, maybe some higher volume, squats, deadlifts, bench press, overhead presses, rows, uh, the big bodybuilding movements is what's going to help you to deplete some glycogen and you know, also help you build muscle. But, but again, the diet part is going to be the, the fat loss part. Zach, you got anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I would just say like, I would think like you're in a good position to cut fat without having to sacrifice some of the workload, just because for you, it's essentially, you know, you're asking your body to either burn body fat or burn an exogenous fat source. So whether you're eating a fattier cut of meat, or a leaner cut of meat, your body's going to burn fat either way. So if you want it to come off your body, I think, like Sean said, turn to some of those leaner cuts of meat and take advantage of that protein leverage. Like we've talked about in previous episodes, like the thermogenic effect of protein is something like 30%, where when you compare that to fat and carbs, which are like in the, the low single digits, you know, you can just, you can appreciate how much more weight potential you'd have lose by leveraging that protein and then uh, turning to body fat versus uh, exogenous fat. It doesn't mean you have to eat zero fat. It just means like, you know, lowering it a little bit is just going to take a little bit more off of you over time. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think, uh, I think we got his question taken care of. Yeah. Right, let me go with uh, oh, wait, just, yeah. what you got another one. Oh wait, no, you talked about the Facebook group. Never mind. Yeah. Um, cool. Let me talk. Let's do Jason Clark, not uh, not related to Tom Clark. Jason's got an E at the end of his name. Uh, and I'll let you do this one, Zach. Hi, I started low carb. I started a low carb, high fat diet four months ago, and I've had tremendous results. You guys on Twitter are the reason for this. Well, thank you. I've even managed to come off my long term GERD medication. GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease. For you guys don't know that. Um, I still have a few problems though, so apologize for these basic questions. I've lost some weight, but now I feel too thin. <laughs> I want to put uh, more weight on. I've never eaten so much meat in all my life as well, <laughs> so I'm not sure if I should eat more food. I'm not one for exercising. Would exercising put more weight on me? Another problem is that I've, since I've started low-carb, high-fat is I suffer uh, with chronic leg cramps in the middle of the night. I've read things like increase your carbs and take magnesium tablets, but I'm not sure if this is right. Just started listening to your podcast. Great stuff. Thank you. All right, Zach. Yeah, no, this is a great question. Kind of almost the, the opposite side of things from the previous one. But, uh, you know, for when, when you're, if you're losing too much weight um, and you don't exercise, I think in, in your goal is to, to gain weight. I'm, I mean, it stands to reason you're trying to gain muscle, not fat. So uh, I think like you take advantage of the fact that you're not a big fan of exercise or haven't historically done a lot of it. And 
you know, just go to the weight room and get in like 15, 20 minutes of some of the core moves and lift some heavier weights. And then, uh, um, you know, you're going to probably see some pretty good gains just from starting at that, that kind of entry level, since you don't have that, uh, that a situation like you would with someone who's been in the weight room their entire life where they have to seemingly do a lot more work to see those gains. And the other side of that is just, uh, you know, getting in more calories if you're trying to gain weight and kind of the opposite end, I would say eat fatty cuts of meat. And if you're not gaining weight or you're, you're, you're losing weight, you know, you can, you can add more fat to those pretty easily, even in within a carnivore diet, I just be putting a lot of butter and stuff like that on the meat too, to add, add a bit to the, and it's, you know, you can put a few hundred calories of butter on your steak and it's not going to increase the volume at, at all. So it's pretty easy to do that. I mean, it's like when I look at like fat based diets, I think a couple of the advantages are like, at least for me and a lot of the folks that I've talked to is that, you know, they, they tend not to get as hungry. So if you're trying to lose weight, that's an advantage. If you're trying to gain weight, fat packs a pretty big potent, uh, calorie source with uh, nine kilocals to the gram. So you're very low volume, very high calorie type of stuff you can add to kind of increase that calorie intake. If you're looking to stop losing weight, maintain weight or uh, gain weight. Yeah. I would just add, you know, like I said, my assumption is you want to lean, you want to gain lean body mass and not body fat. You know, I mean, unless you're very strange and you want to just be fatter, but most people want to gain lean mass. And so I would, you know, if it was me, I would look at your meal frequency and, you know, if you're only eating once, twice a day, you might have to, you might have to ramp that up. You're going to be able to likely take in more calories with more frequent meal eating. That's unfortunately what too many people in the country do. They just eat constantly, but that's going to be a strategy for you to get more calories. Now, obviously we want those calories to come from good quality sources of food. You know, meat, I think is great. You know, there's some other natural, you know, whole foods that would be good, good options in there too. But I mean, uh, the other thing is salt can be an appetite stimulant. I, you know, I find I can eat more meat when it's salted than I can when it's not salted. So you might want to consider that as something that will stimulate your appetite. And then the question about the carbohydrates and the leg cramps, you know, carbohydrates, you know, inherently are not going to physiologically fix the leg cramps, or at least if it does, I've not seen any reason why that would be the case uh, directly. Now, what they do do indirectly is act on the kidneys via insulin to cause you to retain more of those electrolytes and so it, it probably isn't it probably likely could be an electrolyte situation so you you know certainly if, if you want to eat the carbs i don't see any problem with that as long as you tolerate them well uh they're very easy they're another way to make the food more uh easy to ingest uh you know if you want to stay strict carnivore then i would then i would uh, and i don't know if you're doing strict carnivore you said low carb so you know yeah i mean the carbohydrates again they're not necessarily evil and, and, and the enemy for everybody, you know, and I think we just have to pick and choose which ones we utilize. Um, you know, if we, if we avoid seed oils and high sugary foods, uh, I think you're going to, you're, you're going to be okay with a, a number of carbohydrate sources. Uh, but again, I think the quality protein is really what you need to drive up in my view. And, and then beyond that, um, frequent meals, you know, make it palatable and, and you'll gain weight. And exercise will help if you want to put on muscle. You know, like I said, if you're not much for exercise, you can get on a very low uh, time demand uh, program and you can put on some muscle. There's ways to do that. Uh, um, maybe that's something for another talk. Anyway. Now for a word from our sponsors. 
Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. So we do the next question, Zach? Cool, yeah. Next question is from Melissa Elbertson. And Melissa says, Dear HPO, thank you for your work. The podcast is excellent. have shared with so many. Uh, Sean, I know you use an ERG machine. We are a family of five. We have three children, ages 14, 11, and three. My husband and I are 42, in good shape, having been using Primal Paleo since 2014 and turning our attention more and more to carnivore. I work at a desk job, but try to work out most days. Uh, my husband is a rancher and gets a lot of physical activity in that career. We are considering purchasing a Concept2 ERG machine for our family. Can you tell me why you think this is such a good workout over other machines or other available choices such as running, high-intensity interval training, body weight, etc.? Trying to justify the $900 price tag and hoping to, hoping to it may be good for my children ages 11 and 14 to use to gain strength and lose some fat. They are lean kids but are aware they have some excess they participate in rodeo and the strength building will help them yeah i, I mean i can certainly that's definitely a topic for me and, and you know i think in my view i mean maybe constitution should sponsor this dang show as many i think i probably <laughs> sold a lot of concepts to rowing machines for those guys you know over the years and everybody watching me row um yeah i mean i don't necessarily think it's the necessarily the best training tool out there i mean it's a very good training tool it is a very, very well-designed, well-put-together piece of equipment. It'll last you your entire life. It'll last you your, your kid's entire life, most likely. You cannot break the thing. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it is a fairly comprehensive exercise in that it, it trains a significant amount of the muscle groups. It's fairly easy to learn how to do the motion, but you do have to spend time doing that. I mean, it, kids can use it. My kids use it all the time, and they're, they're it's similar ages and even younger than your kids. Uh, the three-year-old is probably a little young. You know, my, maybe when they get my little, my little six-year-old likes getting on there now, and he's okay with it. But, I mean, it's, that's probably an age where they can start to use a little better. Um, you know, it, it's an indoor machine, so it's not weather-dependent, which is nice. I mean, there, I think there's nothing wrong with getting outside and running or running sprints or I don't know when you say hit workouts, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I mean, you, you, you could certainly, you could certainly do a lot of exercise without any money at all. I mean, you don't have to spend money on that. Is it worth a $900 investment? 
you know, it, it depends how big of an investment is, is, is that is for you. You know, if you've got the money to spend, I think it's a, it's a pretty decent machine that's going to last you, like I said, as long as you, you want to exercise, it will still be there. Those, there's, the thing about the concept too, even if you try to buy them used, they don't really lose their value. You, know, you can see ones that are 20 years old and they still want damn near the same price, you know, because they're such good machines. So it's not going to wear out. Um, it's kind of fun because you can, you, you know, you can have little competitions. It's very, very objective. The machine never changes. You know, the only thing it, it reflects is you. And there's, just, there's literally thousands of ways you can, you can test yourself on that, but it's, it, it's a very nice, uh, nice deal. It's compact. You know, you, it, it's nine feet long approximately, but it folds in half and can stand up against the wall. So you can, you can actually store it, it actually breaks in half. I move it, I put it in the back of my car and take it with me when I go traveling a lot of times. Um, it's very lightweight, well put together machine. Um, but I mean, like I said, if I wanted to get the best metabolic conditioning workout I could do and just beat myself up the hardest with the hard, hard hit type stuff for sprints, I'd, I'd focus on something like a you know, high-end Airdyne type bike. You know, I have an Airdyne X. Um, but the concept too is, you know, it's almost addictive, you know, for the guys. A lot of people like to do the long distance work on there. I just do the short, painful stuff. There's, there's people that'll sit on that, watch TV or listen to podcasts and row, you know, row for an hour. So there's some people who row for 24 hours on that thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, I can't speak for your situation, but it, it, any, it, it, there's kids that use it. There's 90-year-old people that use it. Successful for everybody. If you are going to do it, make sure you learn uh, the technical side of how to row appropriately. I've got my own little program, you know, on my website, which maybe we might link at the bottom of the podcast that you can do. But concept2.com has a very nice tutorial, which is free, uh, that can teach you how to do it. Zach, do you have any comments on that? Have you used one before? I've, I've been on them before, so I can, I can at least attest to how difficult it is, or I should say at least how quickly you can get your heart rate up with them. So, I mean, I would just kind of echo what Sean was saying. Like, if it's simply unaffordable, there are other ways to get a really good, like, high-intensity type workout like that. I think just off the top of my head, like, do some burpees, run up the stairs and come back down and do some more burpees, and you're going to be gasping for breath, and that doesn't cost you a dime. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that you have three kids, two of which could use the concept to right out the gate, and the other one who would eventually use it. Sean mentioned that it's basically a, a lifetime purchase uh, if that's going to be what motivates you to get and do the work, then I think that's probably something to really consider. Like if, if it doesn't matter how good the burpees and the stair climbs are, if you're not going to do those, but you would hop on the concept too, I think that probably would be the thing I would decide the most with would be the adherence side of things. Um, but yeah, uh, cool. All right, let's do Jeffrey Bartz. Jeffrey says, loves the podcast, keep with great work. I have an appointment to see my primary care doc in a few weeks, and I was wondering what tests or numbers you would suggest I ask for as part of my routine wellness check. I'm 41 years old, 6'4", and 180 pounds, down from 250. Congratulations. By cutting out junk, sugar, and grain, I don't take any medications and would say I'm in good health generally. I'm wondering about vitamin levels, especially D, living in Michigan, and I don't know what are the best test to ask for or other effective screenings that might be above and beyond the typical primary care protocol. Um, Zach, do you want to try to tackle this and then I can, I can throw my two cents in at the end here. 
Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think if you go in and I think maybe you reverse the question and say like, go in and just get the, the blood panel and then you can get an idea of whether you even need to start focusing on any of this stuff. And, um, you know, cause if you get a, a, a clean bill of health, so to speak, or they say your, your report is, is sparkling clean, then like, you know, probably don't need to waste your money on trying to supplement anything. Uh, that's kind of the, the direction I would go. I don't know that I would go in asking for a whole battery of tests if I didn't have a reason or feel like won't run down or had some, you know, ulterior or alter or like so, something going wrong essentially. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. I think that, you know, we can test, do blood tested to, to look for, or, or to confirm potential clinical problems. You know, if, if you're doing great, you know, there's some, there's some recommended routine screening tests that people will do to look at. I'm, I'm not convinced in all cases how, how helpful that is. And sometimes it, it kind of puts people down the wrong track. You know, your, your typical primary care physician is probably going to order, you know, a hemoglobin or, or a uh, complete a CBC, you know, a chemistry panel, you know, likely a, a blood lipid panel, maybe your urinalysis. Those typical things will probably be done. That's probably the routine. You know, they may pick up something. You know, as far as the vitamin D level is concerned, living in the northern climates, um, yeah, I mean, that might be of interest to you. I mean, I think we're still figuring out some of the stuff about vitamin D. I mean, I just, you know, it's interesting. You can If you get your vitamin D taken in the morning, it's going to be lower than if you get it taken in the afternoon. So, I mean, it's just a kind of thing to keep in mind, you know, with, with a grain of salt that, that any of these numbers you get or, or many of the numbers you get may just change day to day. So I don't, again, for me, I would be more interested in the fact that you've lost all that weight. I'd like to look at your body composition, your waist to height ratio at 64180 is probably pretty darn good. Um, you know, you're 41, you know, at some point, maybe, maybe a coronary artery calcium scan to get as a baseline might be something to, to kind of, kind of look at for cardiovascular disease. I think, again, the long-term markers of health are more interesting to me and, and likely more useful than, 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 than most blood tests just because they're so variable and they change day to day. But that's, that's, that's certainly not the common medical paradigm. You know, if you're going to look at things like your blood lipids and you probably ought to get an advanced panel so you, you can look at particle size and some of those other things that, that, that aren't on the normal screening test. You know, you want to know, you know, you want to know what your inflammatory markers are potentially, but again, those can vary tremendously day to day. You know, if they're low, it's great. If they're high, it may or may not be bad depending on what's going on. If you're going to look at glucose and if you, get a, if you get a basic chemistry panel, you're going to get a glucose on there. So if you're going to get a glucose level or hemoglobin A1C, it probably also makes sense to understand what's going on with your insulin uh, because that's a very important part of the, the, the answer. You know, um, but honestly, it's, you're going to have to just deal with what your doctor wants to do. <laughs> you know, most cases, you just kind of get what the doctor tells you to get unless you, unless you demonstrate some particular clinical concern where it would warrant um, ordering another test. You got to remember, tests cost money. Uh, somebody's got to pay for it. And the healthcare system, you know, it, as much as people are, should be empowered to take care of their own health, the healthcare system just can't afford everybody to willy-nilly order every test under the sun just because you're curious, particularly if, you know, everybody's got to pay for that system. And so I really, I'm not a big fan of 
you know, gazillions of tests, which are likely unnecessary. Anyway, that's my take. Cool. All right. Uh, let's see. Do we have time for another one or do we got to get going for, uh, no, we got, we got, we still, we got some time. It's not, it's okay. not 12 that John's coming on. So we've got Anna S. You want to read that one for me? I guess sure. I can jump into that one. Yeah. So it says, hi, Sean, thanks for your content on the carnivore diet. I am curious to try it. However, I have PCOS with the lack of ovulation or menstruation. I'm currently undergoing IVF treatments. I have been on a low carb and mostly re most recently a ketogenic diet on and off for several years. However, after going through IVF, I read some views that being too low carb could be causing the issue. So have introduced more carbs. Unfortunately, this did not fix the issue. I'm thinking to, I'm thinking of trying carnivore diet, but I'm cautious that it could impact my hormones. Do you have any links to research regarding hormones, fertility and carnivore? Do you think it is safe for someone like myself going through IVF and with PCOS amenorrhea? Yeah, Anna, so that's a good question. Um, you know, the answer is, do we have any concrete research done on carnivore in, in this particular uh, uh, situation? Not that I'm aware of, you know. Um, do I know of people using a carnivore diet to, to treat PCOS and, and other menstrual disorders, amenorrhea, dysmenorrhea? Uh, yes, I know a lot of people are having very good success with that in that realm. And with regard to fertility, um, does it is it safe for someone going through IVF or PCOS? I don't see any really any issue with it. You know, quite honestly, is it going to impact your hormones? Likely and and likely in a positive fashion. You know, I think that's that's the end result with that. Um, you know, there's reason to believe that that PCOS is is a well, we, we, there's a significant association with PCOS and hyperinsulinemia and other metabolic syndrome disruptions. And we're, we're, what we're seeing is when, when you fix that underlying issue and diet seems to do that and a carnivorous diet seems to be effective at it as well, that those other sort of issues related to that team to go away. So uh, I can refer you, well, she goes by the paleo pharmacist on Instagram. Her name is Nevada Gray. She had significant polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, you know, and went on a carnivore diet and fixed a number of issues. One of them was her PCOS, and, and it, she clearly demonstrated on ultrasound that the cysts that were uh, previously there went away on a carnivore diet. So I, I don't see any problem with you doing it. And, and, and that's my general rule uh, is, you know, I think that a good nutrition uh, good nutrient dense food is generally going to help most medical situations. And I think carnivorous, carnivorous diet uh, certainly is high in good nutritious food. Zach, anything to add or any, any, do you have any amenorrhea stories you want to talk to us about? Or? <laughs> yeah, I just, I would just say like, uh, <laughs> <it's not. laughs> you're at least a, a few steps into the process by identifying that it wasn't carbs that are the, or that the, the return of carbs didn't fix the issue. So the lack of carbs wasn't what was causing it. At least that's how it seems by the way you, you kind of went through things. Um, and the only other thing I would really probably add is just, if you don't, if you haven't like check out Amber O'Hearn, just because my guess is she's probably been asked questions similar to this being that she's a female and has been doing a carnivore diet for almost 10 years uh, and has been very open about it. So I would be shocked if she wasn't getting emails on a regular basis from women asking specific questions like this. So she might have some resources that 
that we're not aware of. Um, yeah, yeah, Zach. Also, uh, we did the podcast with Kelly Williams Hogan specifically mm-hmm. on the topic of fertility. You can go back and listen to that episode. It was, oh, I don't know, something like episode 20-something maybe. can't remember. And then there is also a women's carnivore group. Uh, which I think is getting up near about 10,000 members now. And I'm, and, and I'm not allowed to be in the group because I'm a man. <laughs> but they talk to me all the time and tell me how it's going. They're growing members like crazy. And I am sure they have resources talking about those specific issues. And so I would refer you there as well. All right, let's do one. You want to do one more? Is yeah, that, yeah. Do one more since we've got a little time. Um, let's see. Is my turn? I'll read this one. I, yeah, I think. Stephanie B. Hi, Zach. What says hi, Zach? So there you go. <laughs> Dr. Toth podcast was interesting. Grateful for your efforts. However, I'm a bit confused and was hoping you could clarify this. Okay. Dr. Toth said that paleo just doesn't cut it and just going keto doesn't cut it either. So combining, so combining these diets is good. Yes. So protein and fat period. Yes. Doesn't paleo and keto include fruit and vegetables? But yesterday I heard him say that fruit was bad for gut health and fiber was pretty much useless. He mentioned the destruction of, lectin, of lectins, which is in fruit and vegetables. So is paleo ketogenic really the carnivore diet? <laughs> what I think of is paleo alone or keto diet alone. I see fruits and vegetables a lot in both diets. I know paleo is primarily protein. And keto is primarily fat. Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, I mean, I think this may just be a bit of a misunderstanding about what Dr. Toth is actually kind of advocating for. And it can get confusing because some of these words are kind of being used interchangeably, which can kind of cause like these definition uh, misunderstandings. So like, um, you know, paleo essentially isn't necessarily going to be like high protein um, and keto, like you said, is, isn't necessarily going to be low protein and super high fat. Although there are people who would advocate for a reduction of protein within the context of a, like a class, a ketogenic diet, um, things to keep in mind. But I think really what you want to think about is that Dr. Toth, what he's recommending is an animal based diet, more or less. So like a carnivorous diet. So he is saying like the removable of vegetable matter that are going to have like the lectins and the fibers and things in it. And I think if I remember correctly, when we interviewed him, we asked him specifically about fiber and his comment was like fiber can be useful. And he would, if, if you're following like a vegetarian diet or something other than what he's recommending for his specific patients. So, um, yeah, so I think this might just be kind of not, not quite, understanding what exactly he's advocating for versus what some of these other diet trends are kind of looking at. Yeah, Zach, that's uh, correct. Um, and we've got uh, one of the Dr. Toe's partners, uh, Sophia Clemens coming on the show and in, 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 I think next week. And so she will probably get more into the details on that, but the way they prescribe a diet, their, their paleolithic ketogenic diet is it's you know, basically an all animal based diet. Uh, it tends to run a little bit higher uh, so they try to hit these ketogenic macronutrient ratios, often 80% fat or so. Um, they do tend to include organ meats in the diet. They also tend to run a little bit of a caloric deficit. I think the caloric uh, numbers if I'm, are, are not that high, maybe 1,500 calories or so. So that's how they prescribe the diet. And, you know, it, it kind of for, for the standard person, I'm sure they make adjustments you know, as time goes by. But, yeah, there's no fruits. There's no vegetables. It's basically – uh, you know, animal protein and animal fat mixed together. So basically kind of fatty meats, uh, organ meats, and a, uh, you know, 
possible caloric reduction, and that's how they're they're using it therapeutically. What exactly do we have? One more, or are we good? Um, let's do one more, one more, and then uh, save the next for the next one. Uh, let's see. I'll, I can read this one. This one's from Ellen uh, Weatherill. Says, dear Sean and Zach, when Sean mentioned that you had planned a podcast on autism, I immediately thought of Olaf Kolzig. Kolzig is a former goaltender and now goaltender coach for the 2018 Stanley Cup champion Washington Capitals. His son has autism. During his playing days, Kolzig did charity work for kids with autism. Some years ago, I heard an interview with Kolzig in which he remarked that when the kids were in the locker room getting ready to skate, you could tell that they had autism. However, when the kids were skating, their autism was not noticeable. I found Kolzig's observation fascinating. I'm curious to know what might be responsible for this change. It would also be interesting to explore the positive effects of various forms of exercise on kids with autism. Keep up the good work on the HBO podcast. Sincerely, Ellen Weatherall, hockey fan and carnivore. Yeah, Ellen, that's a, that's a great question. And as you may or may not know, I've got an autistic child, my oldest son, Saxon. He's uh, about to turn 13, and he's autistic. And so exercise, I think, is wonderfully therapeutic for autism. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of the kids with autism, they find that they, they, have, they do better when they're able to, to do these big, large, gross motor movements. You know, my son's school, they have a bike, bike riding class, and, and there's been some studies looking at autism behaviors and exercise and it does seem to help with that now some of the things obviously a lot of the the sort of the pathognomonic features of autism have to do with uh, social uh, you know socialization communication and so, so those things aren't necessarily crucial to 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 sports or you know things like hockey or riding a bike and a lot of the issues that my son has in particular really have to do around fine motor control he has difficulty you know like tying his shoes even though he's you know, almost 13 years of age. Um, but I think these big, large sort of exercises like hockey, you know, they, they take some of that away. And I think there, there may be some sort of uh, perhaps inhibition or disinhibition that happens neurologically. It allows them to relax a little bit when, when, when they're doing these uh, big exercise things. But I don't know much beyond that. Um, I, I, I do find that uh, exercise is very helpful. I, I do when I, when I have my son with me. We often will exercise and it does seem to, you know, have an overall calming effect. You know, it helps with anxiety with him. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Autism is, is something that I think exercise would benefit tremendously. Again, I would point you out to our autistic uh, carnivore um, group on Facebook. They probably have some insight. These are adults living in autism that can probably better express their feelings and, and what's happening to them than some of our kids can because the kids are not quite you know old enough or sophisticated enough to, to understand you know what what affects their autism what doesn't or how to articulate it proper, uh, properly zach any thoughts yeah just a couple things um you know when i was teaching i worked with a lot of students with autism and uh you know one thing to think about is like a lot of times uh, kids with autism, there's going to be like a sensory thing going on. So like if the activity itself is kind of helping with that, that sensory issue, then it could be incredibly therapeutic and it might make them appear to be more, more blend in more, I guess, with what you would see traditionally. And then the second thing would just be, uh, um, the, 
the exercise, the exercise in, in general, I think, or not the exercise in general, I'm sorry. But like when you have a, 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 when I had a student with autism, a lot of times they would be very fixated on a specific skill set or a specific activity that they were interested in. And when they would identify that, they would stop at nothing to become a master of it. So uh, um, you could, you, you, you can sometimes just see them get very, very good at something that they're interested in. Um, and it can be a variety of different things. So if these, these kids specifically were kind of gravitating towards the skating and the hockey, um, it wouldn't surprise me at all that they would, you know, put in a lot of time and effort into be, be getting really good at it. And then just by being, being good at it would look, look like incredibly competent out there, I would imagine. So just a couple things to consider. All right, Jack, I'm tired of answering questions. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we took a good, good chunk out of them. I think we've got maybe nine or so left on the list. So maybe one or two more of these and we'll have this less exhausted. And then we can start breaking into some more of the new ones. So folks, if you've been timid because you sent us a question and it's taken us a couple months to get to it, know that we're getting to the end of the list and we can start to hopefully be a little more timely with these as we kind of get ourselves more and more in a routine with recording podcasts and stuff. Uh, I mean, we're what, we're still less than a year old, Sean, about nine months old. So we're coming up on one year. We're starting to get things kind of dialed in a little better. So this is something that I think in 2019 would be fun to, to emphasize a little more with the, the listener input. All right, man. Another HPO in the books and one more today. Cool. Appreciate <laughs> man. All right. I'll see you in just a little bit. All righty. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.